Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks, 26 days with the 26th president during the month of May. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, home of the Medora Musical and the Teddy Roosevelt Show, uh, home of the Bully Pulpit Golf Course, future home of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. It was in this region that Theodore Roosevelt wrote uh, that uh, the romance of his life began and that he would have never been president but for his experiences in North Dakota. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a young cattle rancher here. Uh, he had some uh, tragedy uh, in his life, uh, not just some, quite deep. The loss of his wife and widowed mother on the same day when he was a young man but 25 years old. and. Uh, it was then, uh, after having already purchased an interest in the cattle here, that Theodore Roosevelt came out and actively ranched and healed. Here in Medora, at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, we say our mission is to connect people to place for positive, life-changing experiences. And I hope in the weeks and months and years ahead, you'll come and join me here in Medora, and we might hike in the Badlands and, and visit uh, the Elkhorn Ranch. Some call it the cradle of conservation for some of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's early writings and insights on the conservation of our natural resources came from his time here. And certainly of all the life experiences that Theodore Roosevelt subsequently had, uh, amongst uh, the greatest in uh, focusing uh, the ability to uh, act on that conservation legacy was uh, after he spent three days and nights camping with John Muir, the great bearded botanist of the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, on these dates, May 15th through 17th, 1903, and that'll be the primary subject of uh, our conversation today. I wanted to note with uh, great joy uh, that today marks the 77th birthday of my late mother, Joan Elizabeth Prager Wiegand. Uh, my mother Joan was an artist, and she was born on this date in 1943, and and sadly, uh, she died in 1987, far too young. Um, it was uh, on this date uh, today, if we had not been in pandemic, that I would have been performing in South Haven, Michigan, 
The Wolverine State, one of six that Theodore Roosevelt won in 1912. We would have spent a day in the schools congratulating the students on a great school year, and we still do that uh, remotely across the country. Uh, but I would have enjoyed the uh, afternoon, uh, a light supper, and the chance to perform uh, that evening for one of the nice ladies who's been watching along on these programs, uh, Sharon Kervis uh, in Chicago, young Sharon and my mother and my father and Sharon's uh, boyfriend and then husband Jerry, a, sh new, uh, a Chicago police officer professionally for a, a lifetime. Uh, the four of them, I think, were quite a foursome in their youth. And, and uh, Sharon, uh, we will rendezvous for supper. We will reschedule those performances for late in the fall. And I look forward to seeing you and sharing stories about my mother, Joan, to whom I would like to dedicate uh, today's performance. My mother came to Palatine High School, my senior year of high school in uh, 1983 in the spring. I'd had an independent study project uh, tutored by one teacher, and I was to make my oral presentation on my semester-long study of Karl Marx's theory of labor alienation. I fall asleep just contemplating the, uh, the content of that presentation, leaving the parking lot together that afternoon for the uh, presentation concluded the day. My mother, a great uh, student late in life in community college, straight A's, she turned to me and said, Joey, you should be a teacher. Dismissively, uh, like a good teenager, I said, Mom, I'm going to go into a career in public service and politics. I'm going to be a member of Congress from the United States, uh, from uh, the state of Illinois to, uh, to uh, the United States Congress. And, and uh, I smile now. My mother was such a wise woman in many ways. I've become a teacher. Also an entertainer in the tradition of my father, Jim Wiggins, uh, the late uh, hippie comedian known professionally as the last hippie in America. I do love an audience, and uh, Sharon, I wish we were together for a, a Teddy Roosevelt show and a wonderful uh, theater in South Haven, Michigan tonight, and, and we'll look forward to uh, do that in the fall. Today is May 15th, spring, and uh, the green are abounding about us. There are some other things that happened on May 15th, even for Theodore Roosevelt. Go back to his governorship, and on this date in 1899, he made an important speech at the Independent Club in Buffalo, New York, uh, uh, Property and the State. And May 15th, 1900, a speech at the cornerstone laying of a new school in Oyster Bay, New York. And perhaps we'll have a chance to come back to, uh, to those at a later time. On this date in 1841, the birth in Wallingford, Connecticut, of Clarence Edward Dutton. Uh, he would uh, die in 1912 in Englewood, New Jersey. An American geologist and U.S. Army officer, uh, very important in uh, expeditions uh, undertaken by the U.S. Geological Survey, for whom he worked for a career after having fought in the Civil War in the 21st Connecticut Volunteer Infantry. Uh, he did a great deal out in the uh, Sonoran Desert and also in the Grand Canyon. And uh, it, uh, it is also true that uh, for the U.S. Geological Survey that uh, Dutton led a, uh, an effort uh, at uh, Crater Lake in Oregon, pushing a boat up the side of the mountain and then down the 2,000 uh, feet uh, to uh, Crater Lake itself. And they did the first measurements, briefly overestimating the depth of that lake, which is now thought to be 1,942 feet deep the deepest natural lake in North America, and of course the site of one of Theodore Roosevelt's five national parks. It was uh, written by Wallace Stegner in Beyond the Hundredth Meridian, quote, Dutton, 
first taught the world to look at that country and see it as it was. Dutton is almost as much the genius loci of the Grand Canyon as Muir is of Yosemite. Uh, for uh, Dutton, uh, along with John Wesley Paul and Gilbert and Holmes, had done a great deal of surveying in that region. On this date in 1856, the birth in Chittenango, New York, of Lyman Frank Baum. You might know him as Frank Baum, American novelist, quite a prolific writer, but we probably know him best and almost singularly uh, for his Wizard of Oz in 1900, and uh, read, of course, now uh, as a, uh, a great populist critique uh, on the uh, economic order of things out on the plains. Uh, Baum set his uh, Oz in Kansas based off some years from 1888 to 1891 when Baum and his wife lived in Aberdeen, South Dakota, of course, beginning in those years as a territory, all one Dakota territory. Uh, Baum and his wife would have been in Dakota territory when it became a state, uh, then when South Dakota became a state along with North Dakota in 1889. Baum would uh, write Oz in Chicago, and uh, he died in Hollywood, California in 1919. Of course, that uh, Wizard of Oz film was 1939 after his passing. 1857, the birth in Dundee, Scotland. So in addition to John Muir, we've got another Scots-American. This, uh, Wilhelmina uh, Patton Stevens Fleming. And uh, she uh, was born in Dundee, Scotland on the state in 1857, would die May 21st, 1911 in Boston, Massachusetts. An astronomer on staff at the, college, uh, at the Harvard College Observatory. During her career, she helped develop a common designation system for stars and cataloged thousands of stars and other astronomical phenomena. Among several career achievements that advanced astronomy, Fleming is noted for her discovery of the Horsehead Nebula in 1888. If you've got a uh, young boy or a young girl in your home who likes the stars, perhaps you can introduce them to the character uh, Wilhelmina Fleming. 1862, the Department of Agriculture, uh, born on this date. Uh, Theodore, uh, President Abraham Lincoln signs a bill into law creating the United States Bureau of Agriculture, later named the Department of Agriculture. In 1869, women's suffrage in New York, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton form the National Women's Suffrage Association on this date. And on this date in 1886, the death of Emily Dickinson in Amherst, Massachusetts, the American poet and author born in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1830. Emily Dickinson did not get out much, I think is a, an understatement, perhaps. 1911, on this date, two significant decisions uh, by the United States Supreme Court. Of course, this is during the uh, Taft administration, but a great deal of the uh, investigations by the Justice Department and perhaps even the initiation of these cases finally determined on appeal uh, at the Supreme Court. The Standard Oil of New Jersey v. United States was the case in which uh, the court held with the uh, government that uh, Standard Oil had uh, been guilty of monopolizing the petroleum industry through a series of abusive and anti-competitive actions. The uh, court's remedy was to divide the Standard Oil uh, Company into uh, several uh, geographically separate and eventually competing firms. And in 1911, another antitrust case, United States v. American Tobacco Company, and this again stating that uh, the uh, the trust had uh, violated the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. That company also uh, split up uh, into uh, competitive uh, uh, entities. So there's, uh, if uh, one wanted to get into the 1912 campaign that eventually wound up into a three-way, uh, major three-way, and add Eugene Debs for a fourth, 
uh, it was uh, this uh, antitrust legislation, the philosophy of the government with regards to antitrust, that became uh, a, a, a significant issue with uh, each of the candidates having a, a different nuance with regards to the uh, proper prosecution of the trusts. May 15, 1903, Theodore Roosevelt is uh, headed up into Yosemite. He's not only been on the road for uh, the better part of a month, uh, the railroad that is, and coaches and speeches and breakneck pace all throughout the Middle West and Western states, and he's been on a run in California, uh, but uh, now he's going to break away from the crowds and the speeches. He's got a three-day camping trip planned with John Muir. There's not a lot of significant original material written by either man. Uh, one of the two United States uh, Army uh, officers that accompanied uh, the, uh, uh, the camping excursion but gave both men their space. Uh, the notes of one of those gentlemen is uh, in the library at Yosemite. And my friend Lee Stetson has done uh, amazing work in putting his two-man play, The Tramp and the Rough Rider, together to source some of those materials. But I thought we'd start the day with the uh, speech at 7.30 in the morning given by, given by uh, Theodore Roosevelt to uh, an unexpected crowd, apparently at Raymond, California. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I did not realize that I was to meet you today, still less to address an audience such as this. And I had only come prepared to go into the Yosemite with John Muir, so I must ask you to excuse my costume. I have enjoyed so much seeing Southern California and San Francisco that I felt my trip would be incomplete if I did not get up into your beautiful country and then see the Yosemite. Before I came on this trip, I was inclined to grumble because I found we were giving relatively four times as much time to California as to any other state. Now I feel that we did not give it half enough. It ought to have been eight times instead of four times. I have enjoyed being here. I have never been on the Pacific coast before. For a number of years, I lived in the Rockies. I was in the cow business in those days. Great though my pleasure has been in seeing your wonderful soil, your wonderful climate, your fruits and flowers, your extraordinary and beautiful natural products, yet what I have liked most has been meeting the men and women and finding that the fundamental fact throughout the country is that wherever you go, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, a good American is a good American and nothing else. Here, as everywhere that I have been in California, I am greeted by men who wear the button, which shows that in the times that tried men's souls, they proved their truth by their endeavor. As they then belonged to different regiments, doubtless raised in different states, but fought for one flag and one country, so now, wherever we are citizens, in the East, in the West, or here beyond the West, in California, wherever we are citizens, our duties are the same. Our duty is to lead our lives in a spirit of decency, of courage, of common sense that will make us fit to be citizens of this great republic. I'll have uh, some remarks from Theodore Roosevelt upon the conclusion of the, uh, of the camping trip. Uh, John Muir had come to uh, America from Scotland, from Dunbar, Scotland, as a boy. Uh, he, was, uh, he was born... April 21st, 1838, uh, he would die December 24th, 1914 in Los Angeles, California. Uh, he uh, was in Wisconsin 
as a young man and uh, had a very rough upbringing with a very a strict uh, father. Uh, John Muir probably knows the Bible better, better than uh, any of us are watching right now, for it was drummed into him and beaten into him in a way. He blinded himself in an accident in one eye and, and recuperating his sight, decided to go see the country. He went on a great walk uh, down through uh, Florida. And eventually his uh, meandering uh, brought him to California and destiny to help us save those uh, great western trees and open spaces. The telling of uh, some of the uh, camping trip is done beautifully in a couple of books. I'll read from one today, if you'll pardon uh, uh, going to uh, some second sources. Uh, here's one that's just delightful and of more recent publication. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt in the Field by Michael Canfield. If you'd like to get a, a, a copy of that book, it's a, a delightful book and not quite as thick and, and long a read as Douglas Brinkley's uh, wilderness warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America. And of course, uh, that uh, famous picture of Theodore Roosevelt uh, in front of the giant tree, exactly taken on the dates of which we speak uh, today. So with the assistance of Professor Douglas Brinkley, a, 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 a former member of the board here at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, uh, a, a bit of a reading from, from Brinkley this morning, if you will. Not only did Muir write as a naturalist with the authority of someone like Thoreau or Burroughs, he also joined the U.S. Forestry Commission, offering practical advice on land management. He could play the work, the wonk when necessary. Muir's articles in Harper's Weekly and Atlantic Monthly galvanized popular support for protecting forests. Although history always associates Muir with Yosemite, he was also largely responsible for Mount Rainier's becoming a national park in 1899. So when Roosevelt arrived in Muir's backyard, Yosemite National Park in 1903, the 65-year-old Muir was celebrated worldwide as a wise man. That year alone and the next, Muir traveled to London, Paris, Berlin, Russia, Finland, Korea, Japan, China, India, Egypt, Ceylon, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and Hawaii. Roosevelt had purposely come to Yosemite before Muir left on his intercontinental tour. The president wanted to pay homage to Muir and to exploit their high-profile rapport for the history books. The general goodwill between Roosevelt and Muir that spring was exemplary. Both men had gone after the malefactors of great wealth in the West for raping the natural landscape. Muir was thrilled that President Roosevelt, through Secretary of the Interior Hitchcock, was punishing those who abused their power at the General Land Office. President Roosevelt waged historic warfare against dishonest California Cooper syndicates, real estate speculators, thieves at the Land Office, and lumber companies. Under Roosevelt's influence, the county indicted Binger Herman, Senator Mitchell of Oregon, Benson and Hyde. In other words, besides their insatiable love for the outdoors, Roosevelt and Muir shared enemies lists. The great three-night Yosemite campout of Roosevelt and Muir almost didn't happen, owing to conflicting schedules. As noted, Muir had planned to travel around the world promoting national parks with his conservationist friend Charles S. Sargent, a 
He's a Harvard uh, uh, tree man, that may. But Roosevelt, upon hearing this, sent Muir a coaxing personal letter, quote, I do not want anyone with me but you, and I want to drop politics absolutely for four days and just be out in the open with you. Realizing that such private time with the president discussing vulnerable Yosemite would be invaluable to the preservationist movement, Muir wiggled out of his other commitment. Muir wrote, I might be able to do some good in talking freely around the campfire. As difficult decisions go, Muir was right to postpone his globe trotting to spend this time with Roosevelt. Roosevelt and Muir in the, te uh, in the Temple of Yosemite vowed to let their biographies be intertwined for the sake of the conservation movement they were both leading, each in his own way. In effect, the Sierra Club joined forces with the Boone and Crockett Club. Hikers and hunters forged an alliance on behalf of California's preservation. Always a biosphere activist, Muir talked nonstop uh, with Roosevelt about the Sierra Club's ambition to get the Yosemite Valley incorporated into the surrounding park. And his stories of reckless timber depredations were ideal for arousing Roosevelt to shout down the swine, his new favorite word. Muir proved masterful at riling Roosevelt up. Quote, I stuffed him pretty well regarding the timber thieves, unquote, Muir later bragged to a friend, and, quote, the destructive work of the lumbermen and the other spoilers of the forests, unquote. As for Roosevelt, he admired Muir's dedication to California's beauty. Muir, he knew, was a hero and a live wire when it came to preserving Yosemite. Muir spoke directly and from the heart at all times. At one point, by the campfire, Roosevelt began telling his yarns about big game hunting. Muir, however, was bored and was singularly unimpressed. Quote, Mr. Roosevelt, when are you going to get beyond this boyishness of killing things? Are you not getting far enough along to leave that off? Unquote. After a moment's pause, Roosevelt, in a softer voice than usual, replied, Muir, I guess you're right. But Raoul Roosevelt did start promoting the camera instead of the rifle. He never gave up the sport of shooting big game. Oh, what a grand time Roosevelt and Muir had together in Yosemite for those three memorable days. They hiked to and camped in many of the most beautiful spots in Yosemite, including Bridalvale Falls, where they had a fantastic view of El Capitan, and Ribbon Falls, gushing down from the valley's north rim. Religious metaphors filled Roosevelt's writings about Yosemite, with Muir serving as his Old Testament guide through the wilderness, except that Muir's God wasn't the God of ancient Israel. For starters, there didn't seem to be a sickly face within 100 miles of the park. Such human healthiness always appealed to Roosevelt. Even though Yosemite was a national park, bear traps were still laid on the floor of Yosemite Valley. Roosevelt wanted the setters arrested. Only hunting bears with rifle or knife was a sport. There should be no steel traps in a national park. Although Roosevelt changed clothes a few times, he is remembered as wearing jodhpurs with putties, a thick sweater, a Stetson hat, and around his neck a soiled bandana. Muir wore an oversized coat and loose-fitting trousers, looking rather like a hobo who had been cleaned up for a photo. Both men later boasted that they were alone in the Sierras, but a 
Leidig and Leonard, uh, those two uh, army officers uh, previously mentioned, were constantly with them. There were also two packers and three mules. They camped that first night at uh, Mariposa Grove. Um, they, uh, Roosevelt complained that the botanist and ornithologist Muir was much more interested in the trees than in the deer families they encountered along the primitive trail. Muir explained to Roosevelt on the third day, May 17th, that he had an ulterior motive, an agenda item, saving Mount Shasta along the California-Oregon border and enlarging Yosemite National Park to include Mariposa Grove at the, Yos at the Yosemite Valley. Roosevelt was all ears, enjoying himself in the timeless hills and valleys of Yosemite. Always intent on self-mythologizing, Roosevelt had created a lost-in-the-wild scenario for himself. It made for good copy. There was something very romantic indeed about the President of the United States sleeping outside in a snowstorm high in the Sierras with the weather-worn John Muir as a companion. At, sun at sunrise, Roosevelt and Muir hiked into Yosemite Valley, camping within range of the spray from Bridal Veil Falls. John Muir talked even better than he wrote, Roosevelt found out in Yosemite. His greatest influence was always upon those who were brought into personal contact with him. Back at the Sentinel Hotel, still pumped up with adrenaline, Roosevelt was unbelievably buoyant. He portrayed himself as a surviving backwoodsman, trapped by the harsh winter eating dusty bread. We were in a snowstorm last night, and it was just what I wanted. This is the one day of my life and one that I will always remember with pleasure. Just think of where I was last night, up there. President Benjamin Wheeler of the University of California, Berkeley, hosted a dinner for Roosevelt at the Sentinel Hotel in the park. Instead of speechifying, Roosevelt recounted his exploits with Muir on Glacier Point, amid the pines and the silver firs and Sierra and solitude in a snowstorm too, and without a tent. Again, he declared, I passed one of the most pleasant nights of my life. It was so reviving to be so close to nature in this magnificent forest. Muir had been a wise, shrewd host. His desired effect had been to galvanize President Roosevelt to save more of wild California from human destruction. The camping in Yosemite clearly worked. Back in Washington, D.C., Roosevelt urged uh, Congress to bring as many California redwoods as possible into the national park system. He wanted both the Yosemite Valley and Mariposa Grove to be part at the of the Yosemite National Park, which at the time they weren't. Immediately after leaving Yosemite, while he was in Sacramento, Roosevelt fired off a telegram to Secretary of the Interior Hitchcock, quote, I should like to have an extension of the forest reserves to include the California forests throughout the Mount Shasta region and its extensions. Will you not consult Pinchot about this and have the orders prepared? In writing to Muir, a thank you letter, Roosevelt wrote, I trust I need not tell you, my dear sir, how happy were the days in Yellowstone I owed to you, and how greatly I appreciated them. I shall never forget our three camps, the first in the solemn temple of the giant sequoias, the next in the snowstorm among the silver firs near the brink of the cliff, and the third on the floor of the Yosemite in the open valley, fronting the stupendous rocky mass of El Capitan, with the falls thundering in the distance on either hand. Uh, attached to the letter was a uh, copy of his telegram to Secretary Hitchcock. Theodore Roosevelt reminisces about, uh, uh, about 
the time in Yosemite in his autobiography. Uh, this is uh, some of the material which uh, uh, Brinkley and Canfield uh, 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 cite. From Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography, 1913, from the chapter Outdoors and Indoors. When I first visited California, it was, with, it was my good fortune to see the big trees, the sequoias, and then to travel down into the Yosemite with John Muir. Of course, of all people in the world, he was the one with whom it was best worthwhile thus to see the Yosemite. He told me that when Emerson came to California, he tried to get him to come out and camp with him, for that was the only way in which to see at their best the majesty and charm of the Sierras. But at the time, Emerson was getting old and could not go. John Muir met me with a couple of packers and two mules to carry our tent, bedding and food for a three days trip. The first night was clear, and we lay down in the darkening aisles of the great Sequoia Grove. The majestic trunks, beautiful in color and in symmetry, rose round us like the pillars of a mightier cathedral than ever was conceived even by the fervor of the Middle Ages. Hermit thrushes sang beautifully in the evening and again with a burst of wonderful music at dawn. Now, I was interested and a little surprised to find that, unlike John Burroughs, John Muir cared little for birds or bird songs and knew little about them. The hermit thrushes meant nothing to him. The trees and the flowers and the cliffs, everything. The only birds he noticed or cared for were some that were very conspicuous, uh, such as the water ossels, always particular favorites of mine, too. The second night we camped in a snowstorm on the edge of the canyon walls under the spreading limbs of a grove of mighty silver fir. Next day we went down into the wonderland of the valley itself. I shall always be glad that I was in the Yosemite with John Muir and in the Yellowstone with John Burroughs. Perhaps we should all get outdoors in honor of Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir. Uh, very often the two men credited as being the fathers of uh, uh, the National Park movement, and perhaps even more credit for the parks to Muir, who had such a hand in uh, the Yellowstone. Well, that's Teddy Talks today for May 15th. I do hope that you're going to have a wonderful day. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow, May 16th, Saturday. Our concluding program for the week uh, will uh, have some will have some comments from President Theodore Roosevelt made to uh, particular uh, religious communities and national conventions and representatives of national churches uh, that came to the White House during his presidency. I wish you all the best. Goodbye and good luck.